0: Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy the selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. This past week, we commemorated Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, which mourns the millions of Jews who died, at least in part, because they had no place to find refuge. No country who would take them in. Our own country, the U.S. had strict quotas, and Israel did not yet exist. The, the British, who controlled mandatory Palestine as it was known at the time, did not, let, did not allow Jewish immigration. And even after the end of the war, the quarter million Jews lucky enough to escape death at the hands of the Nazis, were stuck in Europe in DP, in displaced persons camps for years, languishing as no country was willing to give them a second chance at life. And in our own day, Far too many Syrians, Yemenites, Sudanese, and now Ukrainians. Over 30 million people in this world, refugees, have lost their homes to war, have fled for their lives with not, else, not much else other than the shirts on their back, no country willing to take them in. And we are blessed, as I said in our introduction this evening, to have with us tonight a child of this congregation, who spent her life listening to and amplifying the stories of refugees from around the world. Dana Sachs, who, by the way, her mother, Diane, is featured upstairs in our Rabbi Wax exhibit, reading a letter of support that she wrote to Rabbi Wax 50 years ago, continuing in this beautiful tradition of righteousness and standing up for what is right graciously agreed to share your wisdom and your experience in a Devar Torah, um, which literally means a word of Torah, sharing both words and teachings from our own ancient Torah and the Torah of your life. So for all of you, a little more background on Dana. She is a journalist, a novelist and a nonprofit founder. A former Fulbright scholar, she's the author of five books of fiction and nonfiction, including her most recent book, All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis. She's also the co-founder of the nonprofit Humanity Now, which provides funding to grassroots relief teams in Greece, Ukraine, and along Ukraine's borders. Dana, we are so honored to have you with us tonight. Welcome.
1: Me? Yes. Oh, good. Okay, thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, and thank you, Rabbi. That was beautiful, especially what you said about my mother, who is an inspiration for me. Um, it's really wonderful to be here at the temple. And um, I think the last time I spoke at the temple was at my confirmation. <laughs> and some of my class members are here tonight, so that's pretty great for me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Um, so, I, um, I, we just finished with uh, Passover and uh, I wanted to tell you about uh, something I thought about over Passover. When we were singing Dainu, I um, started thinking about a, another meal that I had that sort of reminded me of the Exodus um, back in Greece in 2016 on my first trip to Greece. It was at Idomeni um, Camp, which was up on the northern border of uh, Greece and Macedonia and you may remember the news from that period of time when there were hundreds of thousands of of refugees coming across mostly from Turkey across the Aegean Sea in little tiny boats and some of them drowned Um, and then they ended up in Greece they were trying to get to the safety and security of Europe and for a while they were allowed to continue because the the borders in Europe were open but when so many of them came Um, Europe started freaking out a little bit, and um, eventually they closed the border between Greece and and Macedonia, and people who had already entered Greece by that point but hadn't gotten out were effectively stuck in that country. So um, the, the large international aid organizations that you expect to be there in times of crisis um, really weren't there. They they weren't prepared for a crisis in Europe. They were used to working in other places and they're kind of slow-moving a lot of times anyway. So, so basically what happened was people were arriving in Greece and um, on those little boats so you don't take luggage on the, those boats you just had yourself and the clothes on your back basically maybe a few documents and some money and your children and you, people were arriving and they were cold and sick and hungry and there was just nothing there for them when they arrived and so it was it was a humanitarian disaster but something really amazing happened which is that first local greek villagers and then people from all over the continent and people from here came together to help and they volunteered and they provided not enough aid it's never been enough but something and so people weren't weren't starving and basically for a long time the the humanitarian relief Effort in Greece was was basically on the backs of these volunteers. So in 2016, I went with a friend and we volunteered um, up at the camp at Idomeni and. Um, when we were there we were doing all sorts of things like helping provide meals and we were only there for 10 days it wasn't very long but but we joined these little aid teams and we'd say what can we do to help and they'd say go work in the warehouse or serve food or distribute clothes or anything and um, so we were distributing clothes one day when my friend started talking with a Syrian family that had been living in the the camp for months and um, they invited us to their tent for a meal and so we went. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about the tents. At Edomene, it was basically just, I mean, there were 10,000 people there at least when I was there. And they were all living in these, like, camping tents, basically. Except a few lucky ones were able to live in some, st- some structures, some larger tents with canvas Um, walls that had wooden floors and cots in them and those tents were built by the United Nations and and the people that we were visiting were lucky enough to live in one of those tents and they had gotten in there just recently and it was very nice compared to the little the tents on the ground, mostly because the tents that were on the ground, every time it rained, like think about it today, if you were living in a tent today, you'd basically be in the mud. And so everybody who wasn't in one of those canvas tents was, was in the mud. So they were lucky in that way, but it was still a tent. They still had to walk a long way to get to porta-potties, and um, that was actually particularly bad for them because they had a daughter who had a kidney problem, and she had to sit in those porta-potties. And you fall... You fall been in porta potties before; they're not nice, and she had to sit in them for a long time because of her kidney problem. And so, there's like a lack of dignity in a situation like that. Um, but they invited us for a meal, and that meal was a feast. And I don't mean it was a feast like in quantity or quality, but it was a feast like a celebration. Like a seder meal is a is a celebration. It's something that we we find deeper meaning in. It's not just it's not just the food that you're having, and um, So, I'll tell you a little bit about that meal in the tent. Um, What were we celebrating? Well, we were celebrating the fact that they had survived the war in Syria. We were celebrating this really unexpected friendship that we were developing with them. And we were just having fun, because when you're living in a tent, I mean, all of us want to have fun, but if you're living in a tent, and you're in a camp and you don't know what's going to happen it's really important to have some joy and fun and so it was that too so on that afternoon we sat in their tent on this wooden floor with one of those gold mylar emergency blankets that you put around like in case of emergency we spread it out and we're like "Ooh, we're rich because it was gold and um, and and uh, the the mother Salma she made she had they had a little camp stove it was like as big as a coffee mug and she made this incredible rice pilaf which was wonderful and she chopped up cucumbers and tomatoes and we had a um, an, a Middle Eastern salad and um, they didn't have enough plates so everybody had a spoon and we ate off the same platters and um, we we drank tea out of baby food jars because they had a baby and. Um, after we ate we played cards and I had some face paint so I you know made the little girls into um, like clowns and animals and we took lots of pictures and it was a celebration because it was better than a lot of things that could have been so I've always found it fascinating that Jews celebrate the Seder when we celebrate the Seder we talk about it not as distant history but as our personal history. So you know, like we don't remember it as our ancestors fleeing Egypt. We remember it that we fled Egypt. And the difference is really important. It means everything. We say, I was a slave and now I'm free. I was a slave and now I'm free. And why does this matter? Because when we put ourselves into the equation, it helps us to feel acutely for other people and it brings us closer to their suffering and it deepens our understanding of pain and most importantly, it opens our hearts so that we want to help. And what I'm describing is not just compassion, it's more active and urgent. We see the suffering and we need to help. So I want to tell you a little bit about this aid movement that I was a part of and I'm still a part of in Greece and now in Poland. It's powered by people like us, but it's really powered by refugees themselves who become volunteers, and they're called community volunteers. And the rest of us are doing our best to help them because they know know what the needs are and we try to support them in that. And I want to tell you about one of these community volunteers. His name is Ibrahim. And um, he comes from Syria, and he was actually a humanitarian aid professional in Syria. He worked for the Syrian Red Crescent, and then he became a refugee himself and had to flee. And he got on one of those boats from Turkey and came to Greece, and he thought he was going to go north. He was a single guy. He thought he'd go north to some other countries and settle there. And then he looked around and he saw that there was this disaster taking place in Greece where all these refugees were not able to get what they needed and they really needed a lot and he thought i'm just going to stay here for a while and volunteer and that's what he did and in time he became a real a real leader in the volunteer movement and somebody who brought people together and helped them understand the needs of the refugees and i was one of those people that got to know him and when we started my nonprofit he became our most trusted advisor cuz he really understood both sides. He knew how to get aid to people, and he knew what the people needed as well. Um, so, one of the things he advised us to do was to participate in a big project to bring, um, to, to increase the trash removal in a camp in, um, in, in on an island in southern Greece. And the problem there was that there were, like, um, 15,000 people in a camp that was meant for 3,000 people. So it was extremely crowded, and the Greek government was receiving money from the European Union to do things like remove the trash, but they were only doing it once a week. And so there there were mountains of trash, like if this was one of the pathways of the camp, which would be full of people, you couldn't kind of get through because there was so much trash. And and he understood that this trash was a major problem. It was a psychological problem because it's extremely depressing to be around that much trash, and it was a, a public health problem, and it was adding to the rat problem. And so he brought different aid groups together and said, "Let's. I think I think we can do something about this. Let's let's all contribute money, and we'll we'll pay a private company to come in and remove this trash one more day a week. And we did that, and the trash problem." I mean, it was still a camp full of thousands of people, so it was still pretty bad, but the, but the trash problem was much, much better. And I was really thrilled about it, but I was also kind of like, I had some worries, because I felt like, okay, when we pay all this money to remove the trash, are the, is the Greek government going to say, okay, we don't need to remove the trash now, or we don't need to do any more because the volunteers are doing that? So I said to him, if the small grassroots aid teams like us didn't work so hard, do you think the larger actors would take more of that responsibility themselves? Because they really were not doing what they should have been doing. And he just got, I won't say angry, but he, he responded really strongly and he said, no, no, there is nothing wrong with volunteers doing anything. What you said, it's their responsibility, I completely disagree. It's not one responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility. And I had often heard him complain and, and about the, the sluggish response of the large international actors. I'm talking about the United Nations, the Red Cross, a lot of those groups. They just didn't do as much as you want them to do. And, and he complained about that. But he, was, he wasn't praising them now, but he was saying something else that was really important. He was saying, he said to me, if you were walking down the street in the United States and you saw an old woman fall down, You wouldn't say, oh, someone from the government has to go and help that woman get up. No, you would go help that woman yourself. And it doesn't mean to take the burden off the state. It just means that it's more help for people. And I think he was talking about something that we don't actually discuss very often, and that is that there is a human compulsion to lend a hand. We all actually do want to help. We just don't necessarily know what our role is. And he said, help shouldn't be a brain thing. If someone is in need, you can't say, oh, it's not my responsibility. So what he made me realize is we weren't paying for that trash removal because larger actors had failed to collect trash. We were paying for the trash removal because people were suffering and we had the power to help. And that was a difference. So I often think of the Jewish practice of tzedakah and I want to say one cool thing because now I have a lot of Muslim friends, um, and they have zakat, and we have sadaka, and I think it must be from the same root word. But it's it's all charity, and I love it when I see these connections between Judaism and Islam because like we go way back, we have we have so much together. Um, that's just a little aside. I just wanted to say I thought that was great. Um, but the, but sadaka is an idea of individual responsibility and. and I can remember before I came to Sunday school every week as a child here at temple, I would grab some quarters to put in the sadaka box. I know a lot of you did the same thing. And as Ibrahim put it to me all all those years later, if people need help, we can't say it's not my responsibility. It's all of our responsibility. And as Jews, we learn that from a very young age. And the book of Exodus says, you shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. And that word refugee describes a condition during a certain moment in life. It is not a permanent identity. I don't think of myself as a a refugee, even if I say I I was a slave and now I'm free, or if I sit at the table every year and think about the Exodus. Um, But that history, whether it be the Jewish history of slavery or um, more recently the trauma of the Holocaust, it gives us a powerful connection to people who are suffering now. And displacement is by nature a period of transition and transformation. It forces us physically, emotionally, and spiritually from one state of existence to another. So do you know what happens when a caterpillar goes into a chrysalis? I learned this when I took my kids to one of those caterpillar butterfly farms once. You, it doesn't grow from a caterpillar into a butterfly. It, like, everything breaks down to a cellular level and it reforms as a butterfly. And I think that's something really amazing. It's like it becomes something entirely new. And I think that we should think of refugees and immigrants as human beings that are in that process of transformation. We help by offering them material support, of course, but we also help by shifting the way that we think about and talk about their plight. They are going through that process of transformation. They need our protection and encouragement along the way. I recently heard a faith healer speak about charity and community engagement, and he proposed that we think about acts of generosity not as obligation or duty but as a luxury that we are able to enjoy. He said, today we are the lucky ones because we were able to give aid or whatever. And maybe we weren't lucky yesterday, and as Jews, we had a lot of yesterdays where we weren't lucky. And maybe we won't be lucky tomorrow because we don't know what's going to happen in our own lives. You know, we could end up being refugees ourselves. But today we have the good fortune to be able to help. And the act of helping others gives us joy and satisfaction. It gives us dignity, it elevates us as human beings, and it brings more meaning into our lives, and we're lucky to have that opportunity. So, remember I talked to you about the Khalil family and the meal that we had in the the camp? Well, they live in Germany now. And in February, I visited them in this small Bavarian city where they live. And they have a car, and they have a comfortable apartment, and they have two new children. So now they have five. And the mom's like, we're done. We are so done. <laughs> um, but uh, the gir- the two girls who were 8 and 11 when I met them, um, they are now like 16 and 19, and um, they're both in school and they're studying for medical careers. And the older one wants to become a nurse, and the younger one is training to be a dental hygienist. And, um, I, but I don't know if she's going to actually be a dental hygienist because she said to me, I don't really want to do that. That's not my dream. And I said, what's your dream? And she said, I want to sell cars. And I said, why do you want to sell cars? And she said, I like cars. So I don't know what kind of butterfly she's going to become, but she will become one. And you'll remember how um, back this winter, there was a really terrible earthquake in, in Turkey and in Syria. and. Um, the disaster happened just before I got to visit them in Germany. And um, they had made it, the Khalil family had made it to safety and security in Germany, but they still had family members back in Syria. And um, the tremors caused severe damage to the camp where they were living. And so one day when we were in Germany, we called the family. It, it was um, Salma, who's the mom and my, of my friends, her sister and her children, and her husband, who's very disabled from the war, all live in this like little room and and we FaceTimed and you could see the cracks in the walls in this like the plaster walls of this room that they lived in and and the children were traumatized by the by the earthquake because so many people had been killed and um, and Abir the the woman we were speaking to on the phone she said my children are afraid to go to sleep at night they think they won't wake up again and I looked over at my friend, Salma, who's the sister. These are her, her, this is her sister and her nieces and nephews. And, and she just looked stricken because she, there's very little that she could do. And she's sitting in her home in Germany. And um, she looked really worried. Seven years had passed. And their lives had changed so much. And they had become really comfortable. Um, but they still had struggles, They weren't. everything wasn't settled, but it was much better, and they'd stabilized their lives again. They had made this transition that I'm talking about from people in need to people who wanted to help. And Salma's husband, Abu Omar, he told me once, way back when his family was on the receiving end of so much charity, that he was deeply grateful for the aid that he had received, but he wanted to be on the other side. He wanted to be a lucky one, a person who could lend a hand himself. And so I said to him once, what do you hope to do when you get back on your feet? And he said, then it will be our turn to help people.